All right, take your Bibles and turn with us to the book of Acts. Acts, we're going to start there, and then we're going to move into the book of First and Second Thessalonians and kind of wrap it all up. And uh, I appreciate Pastor Zach's sermon uh, as he kind of introduced some of those elements in the book of First Thessalonians last week. Today's daily Bible reading ends with the third chapter of Second Thessalonians, if you are paying attention to that. But let's pray before we look at the book of Acts for just a moment and then into First and Second Thessalonians. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it's powerful. It will do exactly what You want it to do. Father, we know that You will guide us and direct us through Your Word if we're faithful to You in reading it, in studying it, in meditating upon it, in believing it, in hiding it in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray in your precious name that you would help us to do that. We're here to glorify you. We're here to give you thanks. We're here to learn how to be like Christ, your son. And it's Jesus in your name that we ask these things. Amen. All right, the book of Acts. Let me just preface um, the book of Acts with uh, a comment or two. Um, There are always things in this life that go together. Two things usually that go together. There's bread and butter, right? They go together. There's soup and salad, meat and potatoes. There's the best of it is there's cake and ice cream. They go together. Usually when you find the one, you find the other. Because they kind of are important an important combination. Now, I I say that to bring your attention to several things in the Bible that go together. And you and I may have a problem with a couple of them, but you and I need to keep in mind that God has ordained and destined these things to go together. Let's look at Acts chapter 17 for just a moment. Now, I just want to bring to your attention, I just want to bring to your attention the fact that the Bible, the Word of God is going out to cities in Europe, and the Bible says that God's Word went to Philippi first, the Apostle Paul went there, and you know when he shared the gospel he had some problems. He found himself in jail. Do you remember that? Paul and Silas were in jail, and they were singing, and they were praising the Lord. Then they moved on to the city of Thessalonica. And when they moved on to the city of Thessalonica, the Bible tells us that they preached the gospel there as well. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. I usually read from the New King James Version. I will preach from that, obviously, but uh, I love the way it was stated in the New International Version. I have this neat little Bible that's a chronological Bible that puts everything right next to where it ought to be. So this passage in Acts goes right next to the books of First and Second Thessalonians because they were written shortly after that. So they move on to Berea, and you'll know that they're sharing the gospel in Berea. But you'll know that they had problems in Berea. The Bible tells us in verse 13 of chapter 17, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God at Berea, 
they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And then Paul moved over to Athens. And at Athens, up to this time, he has been assaulted. But in Athens, he's going to be insulted for his lack of intelligence as far as they're concerned. But the Bible says that when he preaches the gospel there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And so Paul moves on to the city of Corinth. And you'll know that in the Bible, he preaches the gospel at Corinth. But the Bible says in verse 6 of chapter, I believe we're in 18 now, are we not? But, uh, is, it, is it true? Yes. And so in verse 6, the Bible says, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm going to go share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, the important thing that you and I need to keep in mind is that, and then later, later he is also taken to court in the city of Corinth, and in the, in the courts, he is uh, accused of a crime, and they have to make bail. And so that's the situation that we have there. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the book of Thessalonians, and I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Now, put your thumb there, because we're going to come back there, and then flip back a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 3. Paul is worried about the believers at Thessalonica when he has to leave them abruptly and has been torn away from them. Paul is worried about the believers in Berea when he has to do the same thing. He's worried about the believers in Athens when he has to do the same thing. And ultimately, he is worried about the believers in Corinth when he has to do the same thing. Because it doesn't look to him like there's this opportunity to come in and just, uh, just with the best of atmospheres to sit down with everybody, share the gospel, and leave it at that. Now, there always has to be a problem. There always has to be a challenge. There always has to be an insult. There always has to be an assault. There always has to be something opposing the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, when he's at Corinth and he finally gets word that everybody in Thessalonica is okay, he writes... 1 Thessalonians to them, and then three months later, he writes 2 Thessalonians to them. But notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Why? so that they would not be shaken by the afflictions that they were enduring, so that they would not be 
stumbling and see that as obstacles impossible for them than to trust in Christ. So notice what he says. No one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. You see where I got the justification to say that two things go together. When Paul preaches the gospel, you also have opposition. And that's always the case. That's always the case. There will always be opposition. And notice Paul acknowledges that. He says, we told you about this stuff. We told you that there's going to be opposition to the gospel. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. Tribulation goes hand in hand with sharing the gospel. It's just a fact and we need to always keep it in mind. So, go back to the Second Thessalonians passage that we had you put your finger in. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And I want you to look at this, because I think this is rather fascinating. The Apostle Paul prays for the believers in Thessalonica. And I don't know if you know this or not, but if you have read through the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you know that there are 13 prayers in those two little books. Thirteen. They're short. They're not long. Prayers don't have to be long. But notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. And it's right for us to do that. It's very fitting that we do that. He doesn't just say, we thank God for you. But he says, we are bound. We are obligated to thank God for you. It's right that we do that for two reasons. Reason number one, your faith grows exceedingly. He doesn't just say your faith grows, but he says your faith grows exceedingly. And number two, the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Those are the two reasons. Sounds like an ideal church to me, doesn't it? Wouldn't you just love to be able to say every single Sunday, you know what, our faith is growing stronger and stronger and stronger? Wouldn't you love to be able to say every Sunday, the love of every one of you is abounding to each other and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger every day? No problems here. Wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Be wonderful. So Paul says this gives us a reason to boast about you. This gives us a reason to just share all about you among the churches of God and we're sharing your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endured. Do you see that in verse 4? Now, what am I supposed to do with this passage of Scripture? Well, I already know from the history of Acts and the epistles that sharing the gospel and tribulation or persecution or trouble go hand in hand. But here's the best confirmation I know of for that. Here it is right here. Now, I don't know. I want to take this real slow for you so that you and I can get what he's saying here. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says, we are just sharing with everybody your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. 
Now don't forget, he has already told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we give thanks in his first prayer. We give thanks for you, making mention of our prayer because the word of God has just gone out all over the region because of your faithfulness. And now he says, we are are telling people about your patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulation that you endure. Now let me just say right off the bat, that that's exactly the result that God wants us to have whenever we are persecuted. He wants us to be patient, and He wants us to be faithful. Those two things. So what does He say in verse 5? He says, well, this patience and this faithfulness in the midst of your persecution is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, you may have an easier translation that will just give it to you real quickly as to what it means. But listen, let me say this to you. God's judgment is always right. Amen? Amen. He never does anything wrong. He never makes a mistake. He never can look at something and say, "Uh uh-oh, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done that. You know, even back in the time of Noah when he said he regretted that he made man... He didn't regret that he made man from his perspective as God. He wanted us to understand that if he were in our shoes and he were looking at this the way we do as human beings, this was really a bad mistake. But God's plans and purposes never change. And so God's judgment is always right. And this is an evidence of God's judgment because Here's what God wants to do for you and me. He wants us to hear the gospel. He wants us to respond to the gospel. And he wants it to be tested so that we prove that we believe the gospel no matter what. That's his purpose. Anytime we get something in the sunshine and anytime we get something and there's nothing involved there that tests it, There's really not any way we know for sure that it's valid or it's genuine or it's authentic. I'll use all those terms. They have slight meanings that are different from each other. But the point that he's making here is this is great that we see your faith and your patience in persecutions and tribulations because this proves that you are worthy of the kingdom of God. It proves it. That's in essence what he's saying there. And if those persecutions would never have come, how would we know? How would we know? Now notice what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, since, now he's talking about righteous judgment here. And you and I would wholeheartedly say amen to what he says in the next two verses. In verse 6 he says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Everybody, amen. It's right for God to pay with tribulation those who trouble us. And he will. And he will. That's fair. That's just. And number seven, verse seven says, and it's also righteous judgment for God to give you who are troubled rest with us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel. It's right. So you see the combination of our trusting Christ in the midst of adversity is important to the Lord because of his righteous judgments. Well, I think that's really, really a very good point. A very, very good point. But let's move on to the, and I want to say this to you. I, you know, I thought, you know, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about all of the, all of the little cliches and the little, uh, little statements that I have collected over the years that show how important it is for us to be destined to persecution. I know it's a scary word because, because uh, you know, we've lived in the United States of America and we have reached such a level where, where we've had more churches per square mile in any, more than even the British over in England during the height of their, would, would look at the United States and say, I just can't, I can't believe they have so many believers over there, so many churches. And so uh, for us to see that change signals for us that there's going to be more opposition to the gospel. That's just the way it is. But if I am playing baseball and I step up to the plate and all the conditions are perfect, we're ahead by 10 the sun's not in my eyes. The pitcher's just pitching great balls that I can hit. And I hit a home run. There's not a whole lot to be said for me for that, is there? You see, it's when the chips are down, when we're down by 10, you see. And when we have the adverse conditions of the weather and the pitcher on the other side is just pitching the best balls he possibly can. That's when you call me a champion when I hit a home run. Not when everything is going my way. I'll never forget that particular adage. But here's my favorite one. Smooth seas does not make a skillful sailor. And you've all heard that one, right? Smooth seas does not make a skillful sailor. You see, God uses adversity, God uses opposition to weed out those who are just interested, but not terribly interested in the gospel. And those who see it as a life and death issue, he weeds it out like the sower with the, the seed, you see, the sower, it falls on four different kinds of soil. And here's another one that I like, and that is this. Ships are not made to stay in the safety of a harbor. Ships are made for the open sea. All right? All right, let's go to the, let's go to the second thing, all right? Let's go to the second thing. In 1 Thessalonians, go back to 1 Thessalonians for just a moment, and we'll go back to, uh, we'll go back to the Thessalonians, Paul's description of them in chapter 1. In verse 5, let's begin there and look at the next three verses. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. See, the gospel could have come in word only. It could have come without any power. And it could have come without the work of the Holy Spirit changing the hearts and the lives of the people. But listen, the gospel didn't come to you that way. And because it didn't, verse 6 says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, you can't get away from that affliction being combined, combined with receiving the gospel. It's all through the first uh, the two books of the Thessalonians. But notice what he says in verse 7. After he says, you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you sounded the word of God, and everybody's hearing it, because you guys are preaching it. But not only are you preaching God's word, you are an example of God's word as well. In other words, you are examples because you practice what you preach. They go hand in hand. You can't have a testimony and a life that's not backing up that testimony. You can't. You can't. They go hand in hand like bread and butter. They go hand in hand like cake and ice cream. If you'll just bear with me, uh, my favorite dessert combination. All right? So the Apostle Paul, if you read through the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians in your daily Bible reading, you understand that the thing that Paul is very concerned about in chapter 2 is his own personal conduct. He says to them, he says, listen, guys, when I came to share the gospel with you, I, I, was, I, I did it right, didn't I? I wasn't deceitful. I wasn't trying to fool you. I wasn't trying to get you to pay for anything. I worked with my own hands. You saw my life. You saw that my life and my sharing the gospel went hand in hand. The one matched the other. I practiced what I preached. And he says, guess what? You guys are practicing what you preach. Now, Thessalonians says a lot about that, but I just want to bring to your attention a couple of cliches, a couple of adages that I have gleaned over the years. When I was in seminary, and um, seminary taught me two things that I'll never forget. Number one, seminary taught me that a pastor, and I don't, the younger generation, that's okay if you don't get this, all of us in the older generation understand exactly what this means. I was told by the chancellor of the seminary where I went that a pastor never retires, he retreads. You all know what I mean. He doesn't retire, he retreads. I'll never forget that. And there's another one I will never forget, and that is this. I glean from my seminary days this statement. The best gift that a pastor can give to his church is a holy life. See, they go hand in hand. you got to practice what you preach. Now, Paul was very worried about the church. 
And um, before he got word, he was concerned that they weren't going to make it. And he was concerned that they were not going to make it because, as he states it in 1 Thessalonians, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. The tempter, that's the devil. That's Satan. Now, Paul had previously said to them that, you know, I, I was pulled away from you because of the persecution, and there are times that I wanted to come back to you, and I wanted to come back to you, but I had to move from city to city and worry and worry and worry about you guys. But when I tried to get back to you, Satan stopped me. And I think it's extremely important that you and I need to understand that when you and I talk about sharing the gospel, when you and I talk about living the life of a Christian, it goes hand in hand with another very irritating problem, and that is this, that Satan is always lurking in the bushes to see what he can do to mesh up. He's always lurking in the bushes to see what he can do to ruin your plans. And that goes hand in hand. They, those two go hand in hand together. Jesus, when he gave the parable of the sower, would not have talked about Satan and his efforts to get you and I not to listen to the gospel because of the shallowness of our thinking and from the persecution of the Son. That's the illustration he uses from everyday life. If Satan wasn't always hanging around... Now, Satan, you understand, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. But he's got a ton of fallen angels that can set traps everywhere, doesn't he? He has a ton of fallen angels that can do that. And the thing that you and I need to keep in mind is here's Paul, and he's worried, and he's saying, Lord, you know, I'm worried about the people of Thessalonica. Are they going to make it? Are they going to survive? Is their faith going to be real when all the dust settles? And, 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 and he finally says, you know, I, I, I worried that Satan was going to make that impossible to happen. But it happened. Daniel, when he went to his room, remember when Daniel was told he couldn't pray back in Babylon? You remember when the king came up with his decree that no one was to pray to anybody but the king? The Bible tells us that Daniel went and did what he always did. He went back to his apartment he lived on the second floor, and he went back to his apartment, and he went up, and he opened his window, and three times a day, he prayed like he always did. Nothing changed. But lurking down in the bushes, you remember, lurking down in the bushes were his opposition waiting to see him do that so they could pounce on him and accuse him before the king. Listen, Satan's real. And Satan wants to undo all of us. And the fact of the matter is, you don't have to assume that any time God's work is being done, Satan is there to foil it if he can. But let's go to the final comment that I want to make, and that is in 2 Thessalonians. So we have these things going hand in hand. When you see the one, expect the other. See? 
Now let's look finally at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 of 2 Thessalonians. Finally, brethren, I pray for us. I pray for us, he says. I told you that there were 13 times that he refers to prayer. And either he prays or he asks for prayer. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. That the word of God will run swiftly and be honored everywhere it goes. And I want to tell you something. That's needed today more than ever before. That ought to be a prayer that we pray all the time. That, Lord, we want your word to run swiftly. We want it to go everywhere. Paul had given an illustration. He said, you guys over there in Thessalonica, it's incredible. Everybody in Macedonia and everybody in Achaia, two provinces of the Roman Empire. Everybody knows about the gospel because of you guys. That's how swiftly it's been running. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly in a world where it just doesn't look like uh, the good is outweighing the bad. In a world that doesn't look like that the gospel is keeping pace with the sin. We need to pray that God's word will run swiftly. Amen? Amen. Amen. And be honored everywhere it goes. Verse 2 says that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all not have faith. But look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from what? The evil one. So put all of those twos together and take what the Apostle Paul says as a conclusion and an encouragement, you see. And you and I, you know, our expectations in this life are always the best of things. You know, we don't want any problems. We don't want shingles to blow off our roof. We don't want problems at work. We don't want problems at home. We don't want opposition when we share the gospel. God says that's unrealistic. It's unrealistic for two reasons. You're living in a cursed world. And number two, I ain't going to let it happen. Because you need it. So that my righteous judgment for you can be, you're worthy of the kingdom. You're worthy of the kingdom. And I want to remind you as I close. I want to remind you as I close of, you know, something. we look at the devil and we say, boy, he's a, he's a strong adversary. Yes, he is. And you'll remember in the upper room, the night before Jesus was crucified, you'll remember that Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, listen, I want, to know, I want you to know something. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat tonight. Don't forget, Peter's the one who's going to deny the Lord three times. Satan is really doing it. He's doing a number on Peter. But Jesus says to Peter, but Peter, I want you to know that I prayed for you, and he isn't going to be able to do it. Oh yeah, he had a lapse in his faith. It waned a little bit. But he came back stronger than ever before. And then when he wrote his book, he says, listen, people, you need to understand. In 2 Peter, he says, 1 Peter, he says, listen, he says, the Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But listen, God's the one who protects us. God's the one who keeps us. And sometimes the simplest protection against the devil 
is that offensive weapon of God's Word, the sword. Let me remind you of this simple illustration. A boy was reading his Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and he heard a voice as if someone was in the room telling him, No, God doesn't love the world. He didn't give His Son. That's a bunch of bunk. It's not true. He was so sure that somebody had said that from inside the room that he looked up and looked all around and didn't see anybody and then went back to reading it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. And once again he heard that voice. And he heard that voice loud and clear saying, Ah, don't believe it. It's not true. He looked up again, didn't see anybody. And then he started reading it for the third time. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And once again he heard those words, don't believe it. It's not true. Although now he was smart enough to understand what was going on. And he took his Bible and put it under his bench and he said, There, devil, read it yourself. Sometimes that's all it takes, you see. Because greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. But Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. Moving on now to the pastoral epistles. Lord, it's been a good stay for us. It's been a good stop for us to look over the first two books of the Thessalonians. And what an encouragement that church has been for us. Thank you for including that information in your word. Thank you for encouraging us. And thank you for reminding us of these combination of things that we're always going to see. But in all of this, you're the victor. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.